this episode of Common Sense Emil, we'll be talking to a baller finance bro who went from investing in cannabis companies to starting his own. Today's guest is from Australia and is finally going to explain Vegemite to us. Is it made of vegetables? Is it made of mites? Why is it a thing? Stay tuned to find out. Most importantly, our guest today started the first legal dispensary in New York City, Paul Yao, CEO of Union Square Travel Agency, which we're also going to talk about branding. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, thanks for having me. It's exciting. (laughs) Thank you. Fame, excitement. It comes across. The viewers love it. (laughs) I know. I'm very excited. Very excited. (laughs) Cool, man. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you being here. I know how busy uh, you must be. Um, So... I like to I like to jump in the time machine and we want to go back kind of as far as we can when it starts to get interesting. But before we do that, because of the um, so being the first legal and I'm using air quotes for people listening, the first legal cannabis dispensary in New York City, that's a marketing spin that you have to hang on because uh, of kind of currently the the environment in Manhattan. OK, so uh, I've, I lived in. New York for many, many years, uh, and w- for sure was scared sitting on my stoop, smoking a joint, uh, walking down whatever street I happened to be on smoking weed, being in central park. Like these are all risks people in New York city take now, uh, things are totally different. You know, not only is the smell of, uh, cannabis in the air prevalent basically anywhere. Um, but there are the, the streets, the avenues are dotted with these, um, illegally operating retail yeah. businesses. So the fact that you have to say uh, there there is a hidden agenda in saying that you're the first legal cannabis dispenser yeah. in New York City, right? Like it's like on one hand, there's there's the optimistic part of what you're saying. We made it. We're the first to do it. Isn't this crazy? But really, well, what I, you're at. I, yeah, go yeah. ahead. And you I should actually. Going. <laughs> yeah. So so we weren't actually the first. We were the third to open. <laughs> We were well, the either way, yeah, we're the third, yeah. but I can confirm though we are the number one. So there you go, there you go. But this, but the fact that you have to use that not only as like a uh, a validator, right, but it's also a clarifier, right? Because I have, I you know, I'm saying yes, we're here, we are first, second, third, whatever to make it, but also like. All those people you're seeing on 7th Avenue, 9th Avenue, 10th Avenue, every bodega that you go into, uh, they're not operating legally. And I think that like that's an important distinction that you're dealing with. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So look, we, we, we actively kind of market ourselves and try to differentiate as legal, um, just a subset of kind of legal dispensaries in, in New York state. We're small just due to the rollout and everything else. But we're also finding that the customers, like it's a different type of clientele necessarily who comes to us, who might go to a bodega and over time that's also changing. So um, certainly we're not finding a shortage of people who appreciate the difference, um, which is good. You know, um, it's bad education. And and the OCM, the New York um, Office of Cannabis Management, you know, invested heavily in trying to educate as well. So, you know, it's an educational process. So still, like, you're still having to rely on n- not only educating your customers, but hoping that customers kind of figure it out on their own, that maybe, you know, the deli where they get their, you know, hammock and cheese on a roll uh, and their morning blunt maybe shouldn't be the same place? Maybe they kind of think like, you know, these are little kind of different products, you know? Yeah. 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 But, you know, like where we are in Union Square, you know, if someone comes in at 6 p.m. and they see like, you know, 100 people there, they kind of get the feeling that this is legit because it is legit. Totally. Yeah. I think it's, you know, like I said, I was there a couple, I I lived there for many years, but having and and have been back many, many times. Um, But you know, this last, I was at a trade show a couple months ago, MJ Unpacked. And in yep. Midtown, it's just like, you know, every block there's two operating illegally, you know, uh, selling counterfeit products. Um, you know, you see all these uh, California brands that are all of a sudden in New York. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're obviously off. It's just, it's wild. It's a wild time, especially as like, you know, this should be something you celebrate. You are the third here. you like, that's the real thing is like, you're doing it correctly, you know? Yeah, we are. And, you know, we have more hurdles to get to this point than like an illicit store, 
you know, there's tremendous amount of licensing, regulation, enhanced security, testing, you know, the whole the whole supply chain. It's not just me. It's like the cultivators of processes. You know, we're all doing the right thing. Um, and there is a big differentiator between doing it the right way and not doing it the right way. I think so. I think so. And and especially since, um, you know, the tourist market for cannabis in New York City <laughs> is wild. Um, you, you know, I think that there's going to be, I don't think it'll be long before some of these things sort themselves out in terms of consumer behavior. Yeah. Um, and like the whole enforcement is coming, um, like New York tax and accounting is in charge of it. And we appreciate that we don't want war on drug 2.0. So it's a bit more of a, you know, light touch enforcement, but you know, they're out there enforcing. It's just right. It's it's less a war on drugs now than just a, a you know a war on zoning regulations, right? Yeah, and a war on potentially a war on landlords. There you go. You know. uh, well, take me back to uh, Australia. Um, you know, it's obviously a far away from New York City. So, what was it? You know, it's it's I've never been. Take me there. What's it like? How many spiders, wild animals, uh, whatever, tried to eat you growing up? You know, it's just like every everything in Australia can kill you. So, <laughs> so I, I, I play golf, and you know, like in, in Australia, it's like if you hit it into the rough, you have signs which are like, "Don't go into the rough because there's poisonous snakes." You don't something go. in there wants to kill you. In the in the states, everyone's just out there. You know, like in the in the rough, like you might, you know, on on the northeast, we might get a tick. But you totally, know. yeah, so. Florida is really the only example of that in America, where like. You can step outside and literally anything can kill you. It could be a snake, uh, you know, a gator, uh, you know, a crazy person on bath salts, like whatever. They're that kind of similar, kind of similar. Uh, yeah. So, you know, what what did t- eventually bring you to the States and specifically New York? Yeah. So so I grew up, I was born in Melbourne. Um, and an interesting thing about Melbourne is a big city. So mm. um, my wife is from Indiana and I, being in the States, people like, Sometimes if I'm in the Midwest, they're like, oh, it's probably good to be here. You know, it's a smaller city, reminds you of home. And it's like, no, I grew up in a city with 5 million people, you know. Yeah. Like, um, but, you know, I was um, I was in banking and private equity, um, and that brought me over to the U.S. Um, and I did that for, you know, around a decade here. And then I kind of branched out and, you know, did some entrepreneurial stuff. I co-founded a startup, and, you know, I got into growth equity, then VC, and, you know, the kind of rest is history. Um, it's a long journey, but, you know, that's how it kind of got me into the entrepreneurial path. Talk to me about private equity, because, uh, you know, I think between that venture capitalism, investment banking, like all these things to non-financial people are, you know, maybe all the same or maybe just completely alien. Can you just talk a little bit about PE? Yeah, so, um, I was working for an Australian firm called Macquarie. We're investing their balance sheets. So, um, you know, in the lead up to the 2000s, it was kind of like it's it's an era which we'll never see again where, you know, things were just a lot more bullish. Um, a lot of and, Ws. Yeah. Um, and so it was, just, you know, it was a great time to be in that industry. Um, you know, we would invest we would invest in companies and we would try to, like, grow them and then we would exit them. Um, and it was just kind of a great time. But then, you know, the financial crisis hit, a number of the portfolios got um you know we're distressed um because it's typically leverage and you know we kind of had to get you know operationally involved and roll up our sleeves and really try to work them out and um you know fix these and so you know that was probably my first experience of being operational um oh, like, like around 2008 that you're saying like when 2000, kind of yeah, 2000, started yeah, 2008 to 2012 like there was a bunch of portfolios which i was involved in like in you know, all industries, aerospace, oil field services, yeah. you know, financial institutions. Just Everything trying to took a hit. And so you had to actually like go to work. You know, you weren't just like the money guy, like you had to clock in in some of these places. Yeah. Well, you know, the, right, the right. Whole, it's like, oh, you, you, you buy it, you got to be take responsibility. So, you know, sure. You got to fix it. That talk to me about that because i think that that that's wild like you have these investments there's you you probably had a decent portfolio you know multiple companies that you you had you know fingers on uh and then i just think of the stress of like trying to run my own company 
right? And like making sure that even if we're just talking about cash flow, right? Like the stress of that day to day, and we're not talking a portfolio size company, right? Like we're okay. Um, talk to me about that stress. Like that must've been a huge change in your day to day from, you know, being money guy to like having to go in and maybe figure out how to uh, dissolve some of these companies, lay people, you know, break some hard eggs. Yeah, no, it's tough. Like, um, because what dawns on you very quickly, it's just like, there's real humans involved. Like, you know, totally. there's, there's people who, you know, are probably earning minimum wage or a bit over minimum wage. And it's just like, you know, your decisions actually impact people. Um, and it's really that balance between, you know, you have to do things for the good financial health of the company, but you, you, you try to be humane as well. Right. You, you know, not trying to yank the carpet out from under people with no notice and, it's really, it, you know, it's tough. Like there's no easy way to do it, but, you know, you just try to be human and treat people how you want to be treated. Like it's kind of like very simple things, but, you know, just don't be a complete assassin. Totally. But sometimes it's like, what's, you know, what is it? What's, what's uh Moneyball, right? Have you seen Moneyball? Do you know this movie? Yeah. All right. So there's like, I, I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's like, you know, uh, Brad Pitt's teaching Leonardo DiCaprio how to, or, or sorry, Brad Pitt's teaching Jonah Hill how to fire somebody. And he said, what would you rather take one to the head or five to the chest? So like, I think that's the quote, but something like, but you get the picture, like you gotta like rip the bandaid off in some, some instances, like it's, it must be just a, a hard balance. It is. Um, but you know, it's just like, I remember, I remember the first time I lost my job, someone, someone told, called me who I knew and they're just like, since the first time I said, yeah. And they're like, you know, unfortunately for probably a lot of us, like in corporate world or just in jobs, it's like, it, it's not, everyone will go through it at some point. Like yeah. hopefully they don't, but they will. Um, and it's just like, you just have to realize that you get to the other side of it. You'll get a job. Sometimes it's good. Like sometimes you just, you know, Changes yeah, it's to usually it. way harder for the founders than it is for the employees that the founders have, you know, like, you know, yeah, being are, a founder, it's like having a child because like, you, yeah. you, that's, that's tough. That's tough. Like when it's a bit more institutional, it's, you know, you, you're a little distant from it. Um. So, I mean, I, you know, talking about this, especially like around, you know, just PE around 2000, you know, that the financial crisis then were you, flexing entrepreneurial muscles like was had you considered it or was like you know being involved in all these portfolio companies something that you were like oh maybe maybe i maybe i can do some of these things you know like i i think you know the exuberism of youth and you know just maybe the naivety of it you think you can do anything and it's just like yeah, yeah i can't um, Dude, I love this, by the way. And we like it's entrepreneurial arrogance. Like that seems like a cynical way to frame it, but it really is. It's like in, in some instances, it's like it's that confidence, but also like I've painted myself into a corner or my back's against the wall. So I have no choice but to be confident and maybe a little arrogant. Yeah. And I, it's just, I think, you know, I don't think entrepreneurs are made overnight. Like, you know, they probably are for some people, but it's also like, it's like the brain damage and it's an act of doing, right? It's an act of doing and seeing and understanding repetition. And like, you know, it's, it's trying, it's trying to like, for me, it was like having being involved in these startups and seeing them It's trying to shrink something, which is like a mile wide and like really reduce the focus to like, these are the things in front of me, which I need to do just to kind of move forward. Like yeah. everyone's in the dream, but it's just like, it's so hard to, just make progress towards it. Totally. I'm curious to just coming like, you know, my entrepreneurialism came from, or my desire uh, for entrepreneurship, let's say uh, I think was the result of arrogance, but also timing. Right. And maybe being, having my back against the wall for sure. Like not having a choice. Right. Um, I had come from a, like, a creative background, you know, I applied creativity in whatever sense at every instance of any of my careers throughout my life. I'm curious, like, as you're working in PE and you're like, maybe trying to understand a company's story strictly through balance sheets, like you're, you're literally looking at, at, you know, dollars 
and then having to kind of get to a point where you start your own brand. Can you talk about like the mind shift of like, can you talk about that mind shift a little bit? Yeah. And I, I think it's a, it's an iterative process I find where, you know, just over the years when I, when I think about when I was like doing private equity to where I am now, there's been a long, you know, it's a long journey where, you know, I've worked with you know, a number of other entrepreneurs. I've kind of, you know, you've just been awoken, yeah. like really absorbed a lot of stuff where, whether it's like, you know, you have to understand, like I was always good on the finance side because I was a finance guy, but it's just like understanding the marketing and the HR and the tech and, you know, just understanding how things intersect and politics. And, you know, it's just like, when you, when you, when you are a founder, you wear a lot of hats. Um, Like by no means are you an expert in everything, but you kind of have to be somewhat competent in most of them. Make it to make it right. Smart enough to actually know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. Well, and surrounding yourself like that, that's where the arrogance, that's where arrogance is the wrong word because you have to uh, have the confidence to like, you know, jump in both feet but you have to have the self-awareness to know that like you can't swim. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and that there's probably, you know, like surrounding yourself with people who are, you know, smarter than you or what in whatever way, like being open to absorbing the information, like here's my skill set. It's, it's, you know, like it's, the, it's the duties of a CFO or whatever. Um, I understand the finances of this. Like I'm going to bring in this team to help me like tell a story. I'm going to bring this team to like, help me put a team to get, like actually put a team together, like all these things. How do you, um, if you're funded, this might be a little easier, but how do you decide when you take off certain hats? Um, like I think as you scale and you just realize you need that level of professionalism, expertise, like, is just when you naturally step up. So um, when, like with this latest venture with with the travel agency, you know, we at, at a point, and it's probably when we got the real estate, like we kind of knew or I kind of knew that this was potentially going to be quite big, right? And it's yeah. just like at that point I was like, like I got to stop effing around. And it's like, look, first hire, let's get like, let's get a real retail leader. who Someone knows this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, we hired Mike Conway, who's our head of retail, who's an absolute superstar. But, like, we were smart enough to know, like, we're not here to try to, like, you know, learn on the job, right? I don't want to learn the job. I just want to bring the best best in class I can get and, yes. and leverage that expertise. That's where being funded helps, right? Like, you can, you know, it, it, you can recognize, like, you can recognize and solve for that problem you know, quicker, more yeah. efficiently, whatever. Um, yeah, totally. And funding is always like, you know, the thousand pound gorilla, like, you know, just, you you know, entrepreneurs, founders are constantly dealing with. And, you know, it's, it's different on a case by case basis. And it's just, it's all about, so it's, it's you know, every story is different. Um, you know, certainly with the travel agency this time around, it was an easier story than some other things I've been involved in. Um, but you know, it's always a slog. Cannabis is sexy for sure. New York City is sexy um, for sure. Retail in New York City, very sexy. Cannabis retail in New York City, like the sexiest, right? So I, I, I love hearing. You know, we, I talk to uh, bootstrap entrepreneurs. I talk to well-funded entrepreneurs, and I think like uh, one strives to get to. You know, usually one has to get funding. Can you talk about that a little bit? Can you talk about how you decided to tell your story? What was important um, in terms of, uh, you know, doling out equity versus keeping ownership for yourselves? Like, how did you deal with all these things? Can you just take us through the fundraising side of things? Yeah. So, um, so I've, I've got like kind of three partners, like, like go to go way back. Like, you know, I've got three partners in this venture. Um, and, you know, like, I think you just, it's, it comes down to alignment, right? So certainly, yeah. certainly as it relates to equity with employees, it's alignment. Like, you want them to do well as you do well. Um, you balance that with people kind of need some, like, base income as well. Um, 
So, but, you know, we put in some seed money and then we raised the rest. Um, but it's really about telling the story, um, telling the story. And for us, it's like a story of, you know, on one hand, the good thing about cannabis is people understand the demand profile, right? It's not like yep. I'm venting in your widget and I'm going to convince someone that this is actually going to be, you know, the greatest thing. It's like people understand there's latent demand for cannabis and that, you know, once you legalize this kind of insatiable demand for it. So the demand story is good. And so then it's just a question of like, have you got the operational chops? What's your real estate? What's your location? And, you know, we were very deliberate in getting allocation in Union Square. So, you know, we're on 13th and Broadway. Where Great location. Great location. Right by the Whole Foods, right by the uh, the OG Shake Shack, right? Uh, yeah, like, you know, it's a block from the MTA subway station, which has got 30 to 35 million passengers a year. And so all of a sudden, it's like, at that point, there's a lot of data, right? There's a lot of metrics you can point to. And it's like, all right, demand profile is good. All right, what's the operational team like? Well, you know, we hired in some best-in-class people with tons of expertise. Um, you know, they seem credible, tick. You know, the the story of like your proximity proximity to um, mass transit and things like that made sense. So, you know, it's a bit of a mosaic, but you kind of have the big building blocks and it makes sense to people. Yeah, totally. It's awesome. And I, I again, like, because I think this is so new in, in Manhattan, um, that component alone, you know, uh, growing a retail brand in Manhattan um, is interesting i would say to investors like add to it cannabis add to it location add to it all these things like it's a great story to tell are you know do you have investors who are more interested in in kind of i don't i'm not sure how to articulate this question but like is there are you working with investors who um are brand like focused are seeing maybe a bigger thing, bigger picture thing than just like balance sheets and like kind of your three-year, five-year forecast? Um, yeah, yes. In, in the context of people want to, um, like people want to understand growth, right? They want to understand growth, you know, whether it's in that one, one store or outside of that one store, can you do multiple stores and can you leverage brand? You know, can you leverage um, your first mover advantage to actually build something greater. So, like in that regard, like you know, people are interested in brand, and it's a growth story. And ha- like, how how did that all work together towards exit? Totally, of course. That's that's always the the it's, epilogue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the that's the ending always. Um, okay, let's let's get back in our time machine a little bit um, because we skipped over the whole cannabis side of things. Like one day you were, you know you know, private equity, venture capital guy. Uh, and then, and now you own a cannabis company. So where did cannabis kind of come into, where did that happen? Yeah. So I think in around 2017, I was working for like a, like a venture firm and um, it was connected with the family office and that family office was making cannabis investments um, through a private investment network called ArcView. And ArcView was like the connector between you know, let's call it high net worth individuals and early stage cannabis companies. And so through that platform, we started, you know, we made some investments, um, but then we got more involved in ArcView itself. Um, and mean? through that, um, so we, the firm together with another firm um, took a controlling interest in ArcView at the time. This was just pre-pandemic because um, we had a thesis about, got you it. know, you know, try, so, try to so first, first, ArcView was helping manage your portfolio, your, your cannabis portfolio investments. And then eventually you started, you took a piece of ArcView. Yeah. Um, and when we were there, we, you know, helped to build out like an asset management business and a broker dealer, you know, trying to put the, you know, um, the segments of that in place so we could try to monetize this flow of money, which is going through ArcView. But, you know, combination of things with particularly the pandemic kind of end up crushing those efforts because a lot a lot of their program was all event-based in person and things like that. Um, but that was my first taste of cannabis. And then from there, um, I got involved in an um, operation in Massachusetts um, indirectly through ArcView because um, 
that same team, that same team which you know we've set up in the asset management side made an investment into this business in Massachusetts. So um, they asked me if I'd like consult to them, and I, I I took them on as a client, and I was doing some fractional consulting to them, um, which got me kind of a bit more involved into you know the operational parts of of cannabis. Um, and I did that for, you know, 12, 15 months or something like that and New York legalized. Um, and like everyone, you know, being a New Yorker, um, there was a question of like, you know. Where do I fit? In New York. And everyone wanted to be involved in New York. And, um, you know, I kind of thought maybe stupidly comes back to this bravado and arrogance, but I thought maybe I'm actually better place to chase this by myself or form a team than with, you know, other people. I love that. I mean, I think that like, it seems to have worked out for you. You know, it's still very, very early in the, in the history of Union Square Travel Agency, but seems to be a, looks like it was a good choice, dude. <laughs> you made the right choice. Well, you know, it's uh, kind of like, it's one of those times where I look back and it's like, literally could have gone 50, 50. And I was like, you know, I it's telling yeah, my course. Like, do this thing. And I was like, I'm either going to look like a hero or a complete idiot. Right. I mean, never was there a time, I mean, many times, but like in terms of this, like where the timing was perfect and equally shitty, it was like equally as good as it was bad. You know, New York was legalizing, you know, real estate in New York is, is, it is what it is. Um, COVID, all these things like this, this is always like a lately, of course, this has been a huge theme of this show, which is like, there's way different obstacles over the last couple of years than any normal business would have had to have dealt with. You yeah, know, no, totally. yeah. yeah. And like, you know, you gotta I, be I, confident. You have to be confident. Oh, you do. And I was the say universe that. was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, union square travel agency to a degree was born out of the pandemic. So, okay. You know, I, I was living, I was living um, like in Tribeca at the time I had um, a, probably a two-year-old and just a six-month-old at that time, and like the pandemic hit, and I was just like, you know, my wife and I, like two kids in a, in a thousand square foot apartment, yeah, like a New York City apartment. It's yeah. like slightly bigger than the four of you. <laughs> yeah, and we lived on top of a playground, but at that point, it was like you can't go to the playground. It's like trying to explain oh, that's that torture. How do you explain that to a two-year-old? So, so we we end up like renting a place out east, and we bounced around, and eventually we end up on the North Fork where, where we live now. Um, and it's funny because I probably rented like every house like along here. Um, along the way, like I met my neighbour um, who became my partner, Alex Friedman. Um, you know, Alex runs a real estate fund, and at the time, we kind of thought the components of um, having to be successful in cannabis was like, you know, cannabis expertise, real estate expertise, and um, having some, you know, political know-how. Um, yeah. And so, you know, Alex introduced me to our other um, partner, Rainer, who he'd known for like, you know, over a decade. And, you know, um, and so then there was the three of us. And then um, Alex's other partner, Adam, came and, you know, like, why I think we're successful and why we've got to where we are. It's a great team. There's no ego and we actually really complement each other. And, you know, you end up taking less economics because there's more of you, but you go through way, way less brain damage. Um, and it's much more enjoyable. Like, you know, I when know you talk you about mean. stress and you, and, and you, they're doing it by yourself. It's like they're long nights, right? Long nights, long days. And it's like totally. having and, you know, some people feel that way, like they could just do it. No. Yeah. Well, I think I think there's, you know, there's a part of being human, which is like we like to celebrate with people. And like, you know, when you're when you have employees. I, I don't know. My employees are all awesome. I love them all. They're all amazing. But I take there. I have a different relationship with my co-founders, or you know, my business partners where I can like celebrate certain things with them that, you know, my employees would just maybe, and I'm, again, I'm totally projecting, like they may placate with in, in me, right? Like good work boss, man. Like, but, but your founders are like, dude, like they get it. Like they're right there alongside you. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah. so important because you, it can feel pretty lonely when you're doing these things. 
it can feel lonely. You know, it's definitely lonely. It's like, you know, it's sometimes it's like, you know, it's just like, I like, you know, you just like talking to people. You just like, sometimes like, you know what the answer is. It's just like, you yeah. like that, you like that kind of rhythm of just like bouncing it off someone. And it's like, you could, I can only call my friend so many times where it's like, Totally. I'm not in your venture. I love you, but I've got I don't like know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally mean it. Like you can only look in the mirror, you know, your rear view mirror and be like, nice job, Paul. <laughs> so many times. To yourself. Or, or, or now the six-year-old and four-year-old are looking at you just like, dad, please, just what's yeah. going on? Let's put some Peppa Pig on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cool. So that takes us into cannabis. So I, I guess kind of just finding your co-founders is, you know, sounds like the universe really helped you that COVID pushed you, you know, a little bit outside of your apartment and your neighborhood and and into new spaces where you were able to meet, meet people. And I think like, you know, you were physically forced out of your comfort zone. One thing we always talk about here is like, you know, nothing happens if you don't do anything, right? And even doing things outside your own comfort zone often lead to multiple, multiple doors, you know, opening for you, just going to a trade show, meeting somebody new, leaving your apartment and, you know, meeting your neighbors, like whatever, like they can yeah. oftentimes provide wild sort of circumstances for you. Just never know. Right. It's you, like, you never know. That's the, and I, you know, I, within, within like, my family, like my wife is the one who's out there. Like she's gregarious and she's a personality and yeah, you know, people know that, but like, sure. it's not typically me. Right. But this time it's just like the stars aligned. Yeah. I totally, I understand that completely. It's like, okay, it's my turn now. Like I, you know, I, I got this for a minute. Um, so you've got the money guy, you've got the real estate guy, like who's the retail guy or gal, whatever, you know, like, this is one thing, you know, it comes up often. I feel like whenever people start considering cannabis as like a entrepreneurial venture, of course, the first thing, I don't know why always retail first. That's where I, you know, I thought I would, I thought can of planners was going to be a retail store, you know, it'd be called something different, but that's where I first started. And then eventually it melded into something else. Um, and I had retail experience. You know, I worked at the fifth Avenue Apple store. I worked in Soho at the Apple store. Like I worked, I opened the grand central Apple store. Um, you know, I did all these things. I knew the insane level of commitment and understanding of retail as an experience that it would take to create something successful. And I just didn't have it. Like I didn't have that kind of energy. How did you know that it was going to be retail? It, I, I think because when I just, when, when we thought about, just what we could do. Like, honestly, like retail, when you think about the whole supply chain, retail is probably maybe one of the easiest things to get into. Like, you know, yeah. I don't know how, I don't know how to cultivate. I don't know how yeah. to process. Like, I kind of know about it, but it's not my sweet spot, but you know, I understand marketing. I understand Profit brand, margins. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know I, I, like that part I got, um, yeah. you know, and certainly I'll, you know, Coming back to like, you know what you know and you know what you don't. It's like, look, I felt kind of like arrogantly confident that like, I, I, I know I know how to run a retail store at a, you know, at a C level, B level. Like I can run a $10, 15000000 million store. Yeah, like, sure. But that's not what I want to do. Aspirationally, it's like, look, I want to try to get to like something five times that. And the, yeah. it's at the point I was like, that's not me, but I know enough to get someone who knows how to do that. Mm. Interesting. Um, so New York is maybe the toughest market in the planet to like run a business. It's, you know, the real estate is one of the most expensive uh, markets on the planet. It's super competitive. You got tons of competition. We talked about some of these illegal, you know, the, the mass amount of unlicensed businesses selling cannabis. Um, you got to be cutthroat. Um, Talk to me about being a New York City company. Talk it's, to me why uh, why why is that like how is that going to be you know aside from location like you are located in New York City like that that's not that's not the end of it. No, you know the like the beauty of New York is like you know when I came from Australia New York was just like so amazing right and it still yeah. is 
Totally. I've been living here 17 years now and it's like, you know, you kind of just get numb to how amazing it is and how big a market it is and like just how big it is. But so like it's just kind of like you know, on one hand it's like just you go into work and you're just operating like you would anywhere. But then you click, you check yourself, but it's like, but it's it's Manhattan, it's New York City. There's like, yeah. uh, and any day there's like, you know, I don't know what the number is, but it's like 8 million people in the city. It's just, you know, yeah. I, the country, I grew up in a country with 20 million people um, with the size of the US. And then you can think in this tiny little island, you get millions of people. And it's right. just like, stuff happens here, stuff originates here. And it's just cool. Nine million people on eleven square miles. Yeah, um, yeah. and that's just wild, right? It's just like there's not yeah. many people like that. No, it's you're you're absolutely right. There is no, I, I mean, you know, just as a side note, living in New York City was the best years of my some of the best years of my life. If uh, you know, finances were no option, I'd still live there for sure. Um, there's nothing like you know rolling into your bodega for your morning coffee, strolling through Central Park you know, whatever happening on the subway, happening on the subway. Yeah. You know, like it's an adventure. And uh, do you walk fast? Are you a fast walker? How do you I'm walk fast? fast? I, I, I'm a fast walker. And I'm one of those people where it's like, if I'm in the zone, I'm like, I don't know, even know what I don't know what's going on next to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, when I moved to Vermont, it took me like no joke. So like two things there are a couple things like I miss getting an egg and cheese, which is stupid, but this, the absence of, well, they, don't, they don't have dairy. Like it's not the same dude. It, yeah, of course we're, you know, dairy, of course is Vermont. We have the best cow, you know, some of the best cows on the planet. We have some of the best cheeses ever, but there's no, it's not the same. Like we don't have crappy Kaiser. Like we just don't have it. Yeah. So that was one thing. The absence of sirens and street noise and taxi cabs, like that kept me up for like, it took a couple of weeks. And then my pace, I like, I moved from the, you know, speediest place on earth to the sleepiest place on earth. And I was like sprinting everywhere I went for like the first two months I lived here. It was like, you know, I had to like, you know, Take it I had to, I had to relearn how to be a human. Uh, <laughs> can you talk a bit about the social equity component of Union Square Travel Agency? Absolutely. So, like, yeah, let's this get into is probably it. Probably the most important part of Union Square Travel Agency. Sure. Um, you know, we, we in way before Card and everything came out, we'd started meeting with not for profits because we kind of thought that, like, hey, we wanted to give back and it'd be um, helpful for an application. And we kind of formed partnerships with the Doe Fund and a couple other not for profits. Um, and we, we, you know, we we had known the Doe Fund through one of our advisors. We had a long-standing relationship um, for, you know, decades with them. Um, so it kind of felt somewhat organic. Um, but then when the card legislation came out, which allowed, you know, certain not-for-profits um, to get a license, um, you know, we, we really had this relationship where they were going to be, you know, a tiny recipient through a donation we change it to be like, well, this is an opportunity for you guys to get more meaningfully involved. And, you know, they were, you know, very trepidatious because of, you know, the 53 status and everything else, but they saw the opportunity. Um, and, you know, we kind of worked through the structures and everything else. And, you know, let's say the rest is history, but, you know, it's just such a tremendous opportunity for the Doe Fund and, and for us to partner with them. You know, an organization for 30 years has been, you know, working, um, you know, fighting against homelessness, homelessness, um, you know, um, helping formerly incarcerated, job training, employment. Um, like they do really good work, you know, mostly black and brown men. Um, so to be able to, you know, work with them to redistribute money back into the, like into those people and the programs is just tremendous. That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about how that shapes um, the retail side of things, like how has that become, you know, it's, you hear about, I think that there's a delicate line between virtue signaling and being, you know, being charitable. How do you deal with that? How has um, the social equity component shaped the retail side of things? How does it shape how you guys talk about yourselves? 
Look, I think like ultimately with our license with Union Square, like that's that's the Dofund's license. They're a fifty-one percent owner of that license, so it's their license, right? And that's first and foremost. So like, where how we fit in is we yeah. were the developer and and we're the operator of, of Union Square. Um, so it's very organic to talk about the Dofund and the story and like their involvement and the great work they've done for over 30 years. Um, as to how it melds in with retail, I kind of feel these days it's table stakes to have some social good and cause. Um, and, you know, honestly, without that, it's kind of like you just get lost in the wash. Like when you look about the brands, you know, and I think this is just a way to be able to really lean in meaningfully on, on that way um and it's i agree i totally agree with you i think anybody operating in this industry in any capacity owes it to not only themselves but also the last 95 years of you know americans who have you know uh gotten screwed over by um cannabis laws um if you're not at least conscious of that if it's not if it doesn't even have the smallest, uh, uh, you know, if it's not even the slightest bit shaping your motives, then you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong business. And I've had a date here. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Um, cool. Let's, let's get into brand building a little bit, especially given kind of the, the first thing we discussed about the proliferance again of unlicensed, uh, retailers. How are you finding your customers? What, kind of marketing strategies are you implementing that are working best for you currently? I know it's probably like with cannabis, we throw a lot of things against the wall, uh, see what sticks a little bit. A lot of things are segmented for sure. Siloed reporting is everywhere. How, yeah, what's, uh, what's important to you guys? It's, um, it's awareness, right? It's like, what well, it, it's a combination of awareness, like awareness, making people aware of us. Um, you know, if we can get if we can get a customer in store, or it, whether they're a new customer or they've been to to, an, to a competitor, if once they come in, like we find they stick, yeah. and we can talk about in store experience um, after. But so our whole thing is like, how do we get those new new customers in? Um, and like, we really try we try and we do everything. You know, we do a bunch of programmatic. We do radio. We do out of home. You know, we do street teams. You know, we sponsor events. Um, you know, I, I'm probably missing, you know, we do socials, we do influencers, like latest month we have, um, Amy Sedaris doing a in-store celebrity appearance. She's going I to be, saw that. that's great. She's going to be like, um, you know, a, 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 a flight advisor, like helping, helping you. It's like, we're, we're doing a lot of stuff, really leaning in, um, trying, try, you know, trying to attract those customers. Gotta love Amy Sedaris. Besides being one of the greatest comedians of all time, she is part of the Star Wars universe. So I'm sure you're gonna have some nerds showing up, cosplaying. Uh, totally. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, it's all part of the vibe, right? These are these are the things that you're aiming to do is cr create an experience. And you know, um, it's interesting to hear that you're. It's rare for me to even as a cannabis marketer to hear someone going in so hard kind of in the paint with everything like generally what what we're experiencing is some channels are are being you know completely ignored uh in lieu of others and that's you know that's a that's a result of bootstrapping and and you know being really mindful and thoughtful of what's what strategy is is going to work um, yeah and like Humble brag, like my wife is the CMO of Tinder. It. Do it, brag. Don't even humble. Be just be. Yeah, take it. Yeah. So my wife um, is the CMO of Tinder. So she's a you know she's a rock star marketer. Um, so we're you know able to kind of leverage her expertise and relationships as well, which is helpful. Uh, yeah, the CMO of Tinder. They're uh, they're up and coming. They're so they're gonna do Helping great things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're on a few phones. Can you talk a little bit about the brands that uh, you're carrying that excite you? Who's, I, you know, it's such a, still such a new market. Um, and there's a lot more, you know, product diversity to happen in the near future. What's awesome right now? What are you selling the most of? So, you know, it's 
So in New York, it starts out where it has to be New York grown, processed, um, and but then what we see is some kind of more national brands coming in doing brand deals with New York cultivators and processors. Um, but like you know, as as it relates to kind of New York farms, like um, I love Flores Farms, um, you know Hudson Hemp, um, Flower House. Um, you know, I think they're great brands, great products, you know, really quality. Um, and then I, as I, as some of these brands come across, it's like, um, you know, what's doing well is like heavy hitter vapes, you know, are awesome. Um, Rove, um, you know, certainly on the gummy side, um, with, um, you know, Kiva was just a huge hit, you know, um, you know, um, 1907 or not, you know. Um, I may have got that wrong. I had 1906. 1906. Sorry. Yep. Um, awesome low dose brand, like great products. Yeah. Like also one of those things, you know, in terms of product diversity, I dig 1906 cause, uh, you know, it's, it's a tablet, you know, I think, right. That's a, one of their bigger products is low dose tablets. Um, a little something for everybody, huh, Paul? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's just interesting. Like there's just so much product. So in store, we probably carry. 300 SKUs, 60 brands. There's probably another 100 brands trying to get in. Um, of so, you know, it's we, we, we're trying to promote, you know, minority owned, you know, LGBTQ brands. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. We're trying to have something for everyone. Yeah. Again, it's like part of that social equity component of it. It's like, how does this end up shaping not only the story we tell, but the, you know, the story we're trying to tell in store, what brands we're carrying, you know. Um, how does that, you know, relate back to the experience that we're giving our customers? Um, all awesome things to be thinking about. Um, can we talk a little bit about, um, opening day? Yeah. Well, so, how was it? I, I just, just take me through some of those emotions. Cause I've watched the, you know, I've watched some of the video online of, and, and, you know, you got a big smile paint painted on your face, but I'm curious, you know, and of course you should like, you know, I, I, that that's the culmination of <clears throat> presumably months and months of, of. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the Friday night before we did friends and family and that, that, that was wild because, you know, I didn't know I had that many friends. It was just like, it was, <laughs> wrapped, around, it was wrapped around, it was wrapped around the block and it was just wild and we had a yeah. fantastic time then when we did the formal opening the the following monday you know we had um like all the dignitaries came we did a ribbon cutting and you know and it was great um but then it was kind of like i think we had this expectation because we we were so close to first but we weren't first um that like we would open the doors and like literally like a thousand people would rush in and uh, and it didn't happen Right. Yeah. Like no, we still got people, but um, then we you realized the, you weren't the Beatles. We weren't the Beatles, and like you know, <laughs> the people who went first got all the earned media, right? Like they just got all that free PR and everything. Um, but we had to fight for it, and then it was kind of like you know, some people were like, "Oh, you told me that you know, we well, just it, it was just going to rain," and I was kind of like, all "Right, now we get to work, right?" Yeah. Um, and we got to work, and then you know we the growth has been there and like, you know, pretty, like pretty soon thereafter, you know, I think, you know, I know we became number one, you know, we de now like we daily do over 1200 people a day, you know, it's just, Wild. yeah. So, but you know, it's like, you got to work, you got to work for it. If, you know, you got to be smart and strategic. Yeah. Opening day as, as I'm watching you, I'm, I, and I'm projecting this entirely onto you, but like, I'm feeling for you, like, not only that sense of accomplishment, but that sense of like, okay, now the real stuff, like that was all, that was a lot of hard work, but that was just the prep. Yeah. And you know, one of, one of the things we're most proud about, cause we opened in the pop-up and now like maybe a month ago, you know, we fully opened our main store, which if anyone hasn't been or seen it, I'm truly beautiful. Like I encourage you to yeah. go. Um, but the pop-up, from the time we signed the lease, we got that open in 40 days. And so that we're just truly proud of, like, you know, to be able to get open that quickly um, and really just start servicing the market. That was awesome. Well, I think when I was there, I think it was still the pop-up um, and I'm eager to come check out the whole thing. 
<laughs> um, yeah, can't wait. Awesome. Uh, talk to me. You know, cannabis years are like dog years. So I won't ask you like where you see yourself in one to three years, but where do you see yourself in three to six months? Three to six months, like, you know, three to six months, we look back at this whole injunction, touch wood, it, you know, it's just a distant memory. Um, but, you know, we would have opened a few more stores, you know, we would have opened a few more stores um, under our broader brand, you know, it's about growing that brand um and you know re really just watching the the kind of maturity in the early days but the maturity of le of legal cannabis in new york with more players continual growth um you know there's only what under 20 legal stores at the moment and you know truly a believer as we, as we have more retail stores it's like rising you know rising both for everyone um, absolutely it's not even in the, you know, through the first inning. And um, to be one of the first is great, but to actually see the growth is going to be tremendous. Currently there's, uh, and maybe this news will change by the time the podcast is published, but currently um, licensing is on hold, correct? So you have an even kind of bigger bit of runway to work with until more stores, more competition start building up. It's amazing. Um, Paul Yao, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate you very much. I know how busy your day is. You've got a lot to do yet. It's four o'clock. Oh God, it's almost five o'clock. You've taken us from Crocodile Dundee to Gordon Gecko, And now you lead your own charge with the third, let's clarify, the third dispensary in New York City. Uh, we're very, very pumped for the future of Union Square Travel Agency. Can you please tell the people listening where they can learn more about you and Union Square Travel Agency? Yeah, please. Um, please go to www.unionsquaretravelagency.com. Uh, um, and we're at 835 Broadway in the corner of Broadway and 13th um, in Union Square, Manhattan. Um, come see the new store. Um, we have you know, the largest product selection um and the best you know best bartenders um in the state if so we'd love to have you thank you very much and bill thank you so much for having me thank you for being here again uh your time is very much appreciated you've been paul yao i've been will reed this has been common sense amia we will see you on the next episode where i talk to another cannabis entrepreneur about how to be an awesome human being until then peace out cub scouts mm -hmm.